They continue to have these roundtables. The roundtables never have anyone that actually supports Trump. I think it's the it's the scar tissue that they have from 2016. They were pilloried by their peers for essentially helping Donald Trump become president. I think that they're just so scared uh, and so you know panicked and, and fearful of it, of the backlash that they might get from a few very loud voices on social media that they think have actual power when, you know, really most Americans would really be be grateful for that. It's sad. Thanks for joining us. We've had a great week. I hope uh, it flew by for you. Uh, we've got a great episode today. Uh, Steve Krakauer has worked everywhere. He has worked at CNN, Fox, NBC, The Blaze, uh, Mediate, for those of you who follow the National Nations TV newser. And he is now the EP of The Megyn Kelly Show. He writes a great newsletter called Fourth Watch, which details the machinations the back and forths of the media. I always like to say he's like an umpire. He's calling the balls and strikes. He'll call out anybody about what a bad story they wrote, how they're too close to this entity or what have you, or how biased they've become. Um, and so I, I love his work. And he had a book called Uncovered that came out. It's now out in the paperback edition. Um, he's it, it really is one of the best analysis of how the media covers stories. Great stories about what really happened in Ferguson, Missouri. Remember the whole hands up, don't shoot. That was a lie perpetrated by the media and he walks through how that actually got put into our bloodstream, became a narrative. Anyway, great stories. Uh, he talks about a lot of this stuff and we're gonna break down where the media sits as we head into this crucial election. Let's get into it. Steve, always great to have you back. As you, I told you the first round, uh, I think it was my, my audio podcast at the time. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the book because how you approach the media is um, is done through a very logical way so that it's not grandstanding, it's not from the left, it's from the right. It's, it's a very methodical, logical look at what the media is covering and not covering. And it's interesting because since the time that you published this book to now, there's been a little bit of time. What, if anything, has changed in your perception of how the media is doing its job since you first published this book and now the paperback edition? Yeah, well, thanks, Sean. Always great talking to you, and uh, and I appreciate that. I I think sadly, both not a lot has changed, and in some ways, things have actually gotten worse. And and I think part of the problem is, you know, when my my book was first published about a year ago, uh, Donald Trump was not running uh, for president in in a real active way. In the way that we are now, we had this was before all the the criminal indictments really kind of took took place. And so I think we're now in an environment, unlike when I wrote it, and certainly unlike when I first was, was published, that Donald Trump was was obviously a, a factor in people's lives and in really the corporate media's mind. Uh, January 6th was, was a big, big talking point for them, but he was not the presence that he was in 2016, all throughout the Trump era in 2020. And as he is again, I mean, it is now the singular story that we will deal with now for the next nine months. And I do think that when you have this figure, uh, and he is not, it's not just that the media is relating to Trump in a way that, that causes more problems, but it's almost like he's a vessel for bringing out all their worst instincts. And I do think that when it comes to how they think about social media, their total lack of introspection, uh, their complete inability to have any sort of intellectual honesty or consistency, 
Donald Trump is at the center of a lot of these problems. And so I think in a lot of ways, these things have gotten worse. Hey guys, you know, when you look at the market these days, it's got its ups and its downs. You always have to worry about what Biden's going to do, which is why I made a choice to call my friends at Bishop Gold Group. And you can go to bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean to start your journey with them, to talk about how you can add precious metals into your investment strategy. Now, maybe you just want to invest like I did. Maybe you've got a 401k or an IRA that's sitting on the shelf somewhere from a previous job and you want to roll it over. The cool part is they can have that conversation with you. You can either go to bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean and you get a free promotion, which I would do because it's free and I like free stuff. Or you can actually even give them a call at one 984-1616. Just tell them that Sean sent you and have that conversation with them about starting your journey with financial medals with Bishop Gold Group. The thing is, you're getting hit up all over the place. I know it. I hear all the commercials. The difference is, I've talked to a lot of them. I had that conversation with Bishop Gold Group. They are full of integrity and trust and experience. They know what they're doing. Call them or go to bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean to start your journey, your investment strategy with financial metals with them, gold, silver, platinum, whatever you want, they'll create a strategy that's right for you. Bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean. You know, it's interesting. I love having conversations with Alan Dershowitz. And I tell people, you know, look, the guy's a liberal Democrat. He's very clear that he didn't yeah. vote for Trump, but he cares about the rule of law and the constitution. And, and I appreciate that about him because his view is, hey, I don't like Trump, but he has a right to a fair trial. He has a right to due process and all these things. And I look somewhat at the media and I think to myself, that's theoretically how that should work. You know, that these guys should be saying, hey, it's not about liking or disliking, it's about reporting the facts. And I feel like in so many of these cases, especially when it comes to the, to the trials that you referenced, they're willing to overlook things that are blatantly obvious. I always say, like, for example, in the, in the Alvin Bragg case, the statute of limitations expired. That's a fact. You can right. completely hate Trump, but the reality is, is that that's a fact uh, of that case and that it was supposed to be a misdemeanor bookkeeping charge. And yet the media won't cover that because I feel like it's the same thing that with the legal system, they don't want to be part of something that seemingly promotes Trump, even though it's not about promoting Trump, it's about adhering to sort of, in this case, what journalism is supposed to be about. A hundred percent. And I think this is part of the incentive structure that we currently exist in right now. It, it's funny, the way, and you, the way you're describing that reminded me of the, the, the pushback that, that Jon Stewart got to his first Daily Show last week. And, and he actually addressed it this week in, in saying, essentially, that, that the, for daring to state the obvious about what we can all see, literally, 70 to 80 to 90% of Americans on all sides of the aisle can see about Joe Biden and his cognitive abilities and his memory and his mental fitness for daring to state the obvious. He was accused as of, of having a betrayal of the left, of his own side for doing that. There's both sidesism and whataboutism. And, and this is what you see now. And this now it's going to take a lot for someone like a Jon Stewart or, or any of these media figures to hold strong to their principles, to state the obvious, to just be fair in how they cover the news and how they cover what's happening in the world, uh, because there is such a structure in place that bullies and, and really tries to get a person to, to not do that. There's a fear 
that 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 they're trying to instill this chilling effect that we see in the media when it comes to just stating the obvious and covering things objectively. And so so I think that's that has has gotten worse. And I do think that we're actually now we have this idea of this post January sixth world where everything is this threat to democracy. You know, John Stewart's not just daring to question Joe Biden's mental fitness. No, he's daring to potentially harm democracy by doing this. I mean, it's completely outrageous and absurd, but this is where we're at. Uh, yeah, and I was going to touch on some of the tweets that you put out on Stewart, just, but, but yeah. you, since you brought up the threat to democracy, I'll, I'll go down that rabbit hole first. They love to attack Donald Trump. And, and I say, I've said this before, like threat to democracy, democracy is built and predicated on the ability to vote. Nothing that Trump is doing is threatening that. We're allowing, and, and everything that he did regarding January 6th, I'm not trying to relitigate this, was to actually work through the system, right? He didn't take an army and march to the Capitol. He told people peacefully protest. He told electors, here's what you should do. You may not agree with him, but he went through the legal system, right? He said, I don't, I don't agree with the results and here's how I'm gonna seek a remedy, which is permitted under our law. On the other hand, I look at someone like Joe Biden and they are literally trying to keep people off the ballot. They canceled the Florida primary. They're actively seeking to keep third parties off of the ballot. That's antithetical to democracy, literally trying to prevent people from run, running or voting. And I'm thinking, there's not even a hint of a discussion of that. No one is uttering the phrase threat to democracy when it comes to it. And those are just three examples. The third parties, they're trying to stop them. They stop their own party from having the right to cast a primary vote. And then they've been attacking uh, Donald Trump's ability to be on the ballot. That, to me, if you want to really get into a tit for tat about what threatens democracy, that would seem a much more plausible example of what that would look like. Of, of course, yeah. And, and I think two things I want, I want to mention here. First of all, this idea of what they're doing with third parties and, as you mentioned, to their own Democratic primary, it calls to mind a, a story that I write about, a case study in, in the Uncovered, which is what happened in 2020, which in that case, Joe Biden was once again bearing the, the fruits of this collusion, essentially, between the corporate media and the DNC to ensure that Bernie Sanders was stopped from his run of really running away with the Democratic nomination at the time. He had had one New Hampshire big, he had one Nevada, which was a total shock, and was heading towards a potential big victory in Super Tuesday, all these other candidates suddenly dropped out, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, and uh, they all went and they, they went behind Joe Biden in their last great hope. I still believe Michael Bloomberg was in there in a kamikaze mission to take out Bernie Sanders. And it was also from the media. I, I, you know, I write about these examples from MSNBC, from CNN, of the way that they really, I mean, you don't have to be a Bernie Sanders fan, I'm, I'm certainly not, to see that he was completely railroaded by the media themselves, as well as the DNC, to make sure that he was stopped from that nomination back in 2020. So in a lot of ways, we're seeing that again. And I, I will say, if we look to the future, I wonder if this happens now to Joe Biden. You know, and now we're starting to see more stories trickle out from the media. And, and are we going to start to see a push from within to get a, a more palatable candidate who they think will, will be able to beat Trump? We'll, we'll see on that front. So, so I think if you talk about threats to democracy, that's certainly one of them right there. I, I do want to mention, I mean, you, you tweeted this out about this John Stewart thing that you just mentioned, and it says, and this is February 16th, wrote, Stewart spent time in his return Monday joking about Biden's obvious cognitive decline. Rolling Stone wrote that centrist Democrats were appalled at what they saw as a betrayal of one of their own. Stewart's main segment was classic both-sidedism. To your point, first of all, he's funny, right? I mean, the idea yeah. is he makes fun of it, which we've lost in the last 
10 years, this idea that you can poke fun of. But the reality is that, that that's what I find so funny because this gets into betrayal of one of their own. Now, there's no question where Stewart sits on the ideological spectrum. But to them, this is your job is to promote us and to attack them. Right. Oh, yeah. It's 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 explicit now. And, and I, I will say, you know, it, it has evolved quite a bit because when Jon Stewart was in that seat now, close to nine years ago, back when he was hosting The Daily Show, this was a different era. And it was a time when I still think that Jon Stewart was occasionally unfair in the way that he was portraying these clips and, and was kind of positioning things in a way that was not, it was a little bit out of context. And so I'll, I'll say that at the forefront. But I also think that there were times when he would make his audience uncomfortable. He would go after the left. He would try to call out the, the, the people in power on, quote, his own side. But it was much more acceptable. This was a pre-Trump era when that was allowed when you know, a lot of the same problems existed in the media. They were not nearly as amplified as they've become, but, but things have massively evolved. And it's not just on the comedy side and the late night comedy like Stewart or Colbert or Kimmel, uh, but also within the media. I mean, in, in Uncovered, I write about my time at CNN working there in 2012 and 2013. And there were some problems at CNN and I, I lay some of those out, but it was completely different. There was, the mission was still to get it right and to be objective and to be fair. And that really changed. It, it completely changed. The mission itself changed in the media. All right, folks, are you scared of the dark? Because <laughs> I can be sometimes. I know my kids get scared of the dark. But imagine going without power for a few hours in the middle of the night, uh, a few days, weeks, maybe even months. And there's all sorts of threats that are out there. I spent you know, time at the U.S. War College planning, doing contingency planning, seeing how people get ready for things. The one thing that you can do for yourself right now is go to fourpatriots.com slash Spicer. Check out the Patriot Power Generator 2000X. I have one. This is how I make sure that if something were to happen to me, I could plug in my refrigerator, my computers, and gosh knows those kids with the computers and their tablets, they would want those. Your phone, all the things that you rely on power on, medical devices that you may need, all of it can be done with the Patriot Power Generator. It can be powered through solar panels that come with it for free. You can bring it inside your house. It's portable. You can put it in your car and take it somewhere if you had to go somewhere, help out a neighbor or a family member. No fumes inside. All of that gets powered with the Patriot Power Generator. And because of those solar power panels, you never have to worry about getting it recharged or refilled with gas. No, no, no. That's all taken care of with the Patriot Power Generator 2000X. Go to 4patriots.com slash Spicer check it out. This is the kind of thing that you need in your house when and if an emergency happens. Be prepared. Get the Patriot Power Generator 2000X at 4patriots.com slash Spicer. It's funny though, th there was a story earlier this week that I was so excited to get your take on. Th th this is the New York Times publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, said in an interview with the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism that the White House has been quote, extremely upset about the outlet's coverage of Biden's age, but vowed that its reporters will continue to cover the issue fully and fairly. He continued, we are not saying that this is the same issue as Trump's five court cases, that they're even. They are different, but they are both true. And the public needs to know that both of these things. And if you're hyping up one side or downplaying the other, no side has a reason to trust you. The thing that I thought was interesting on this, and I want to get your take on it, is that I believe that the White House's criticism was very similar to the criticism of Jon Stewart. It was, 
you're supposed to be one of us. You're supposed to carry our water. You're supposed to help us and be against them. And the idea that they were calling out the obvious and these concerns about Biden's age seemed to me like they were they were complaining in this. No one has ever accused the New York Times of being a conservative outlet or covering for Republicans. Or, But that's where I think is so interesting is that we're seeing this more and more now where one side is saying, you're supposed to be with us. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, and, and I and I do think that it's this it's this threat level that's 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 raised this this increasing amount of of hyper uh, just just stirring it up the, the, to to such an amplified degree over this idea of these threats to democracy or, or whatever you want to call it. The stakes are so high that oh, it, you can't just cover things the way you normally should. And the problem, I will say, because I I had imagined that the Obama White House and, you know, Bush White House and other White Houses before have been mad at the media over their coverage. And they would say, oh, you should cover this and not this or cover it this way. I think that's happened before. But the problem is, and I, I was glad to see, you know, A.G. Sulzberger actually go public with this and, and say that we're going to stand strong, although, you know, couching it a little bit. But the problem is from within now, because there are large portions of the corporate media, the establishment press that buys into that. In, in my book Uncovered, I talk about them as anti-speech activists. This is totally antithetical to the way journalism used to be. But there is now a subset of journalists, whether it comes to Trump, whether it comes to COVID, who now believe that less information to the public is better, that we need to to keep an eye and, and to, to really clamp down on what gets out there, they, to limit the speech and limit the reach of people because other alternatives are, are rising to power and gatekeepers are going away. And so now you don't just get the politicians. You don't just get the pundits who are pushing the media to cover things a certain way. You get journalists themselves who are getting mad at each other, essentially, for, for doing these sorts of like normal journalism, like from the old days. You know, it's funny though. I, I keep thinking back to my days as press secretary. Each of these guys was like vying for a cable contract if they didn't. I always point to the fact that like Brian Karam, Playboy's correspondent, after a tussle with Sarah Sanders, gets a cable contract on CNN. Not because, and I'm sure Playboy has great articles. Uh, <laughs> that's, you know, but but it Sorry. wasn't for his journalism. It was because, yes, you caused a scene. You had this viral moment. April Ryan had a very similar thing. Nobody was talking about their journalism or their breaking stories or their sourcing. It was, hey, you did something that went viral and now you've right. got attention. There's a big contrast with the Biden administration. You don't see that. I mean, I honestly, every once in a while, someone in a TV interview will say, we're bringing in, you know, so-and-so, our White House correspondent. I'm going, I've never even heard of that person. It's a very, and, and you look in the briefing room, it's obviously not covered to the same extent. I want to talk about KGP in a second. But don't you think just just the way that it's covered is? I I I look sometimes and people will say to me, I you know, gosh, can you imagine getting away with this? And I'll be like, no, I can't. I, I just it would have never. It was that level of hostility. There was a story the other day that John Kirby had quote lied about or giving Iran a heads up before the U.S. sent some of those attacks, and and he came out afterwards and and he was wrong. And and frankly, I just think John Kirby. No one's accusing the guy. Of being dishonest, he was. He made a mistake. I'm sure his sourcing was wrong. He's a smart guy, but nobody caught him. Nobody accused him of flat out lying or deceiving the press. They just, okay, he got this one wrong. That would have never been the case in Trump, right? Oh no, no, it was it was completely different. And it wouldn't really have been the case uh, with 
George W. Bush or others before it. It, it really was, I would say, unique to the Trump era. And there was there were several reasons for it. And I, I do spend some time in the book uh, uh, talking to people like uh, Kayleigh McEnany, who another uh, former uh, press secretary like yourself, uh, who saw it from one side of the podium, or people like John Roberts at Fox, who spent a lot of time uh, sitting in that briefing room during the Trump era and watching his fellow colleagues make essentially an, an entertainment show out of it. You know, like, like you talk about, you know, buying for a cable contract or buying for that next big book deal. But it really was true on a, on a granular level. And this was the people on the record just talking about this and uncovered. It was about winning that moment. I, I read about a time when a journalist, this was not in the briefing room, but about a, a, a sort of a, a, a stand-up uh, interview or uh, a press avail where the, the reporter tweeted out just the question. Not even the answer. It was it was only about look how how tough I was to this Trump administration official. Who cares what the answer is? I mean, that's a tell right there more than anything else. And I think that that is something that was very unique to that era. You're right. And and actually, people like Caitlin Collins at CNN would then get attacked for daring to question Joe Biden early in his administration. She got attacked by her colleagues, bro. How 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 unfair it was. I mean, this is this was par for the course. This was mild in the Trump era. So no, the incentive structure has completely changed. I think social media is at the core of a lot of what's wrong there, both in the way people get attacked on social media, but even the way people get praised on social media. I think positive reinforcement uh, on social media is a really negative thing for a lot of these journalists and, and just continues these bad habits that they have. So I think we're in an era right now where there's so much feedback that we get this sort of bad journalism, frankly, from the briefing room. Speaking of the briefing room, I know you tweeted at one point, it's amazing how bad she is. I mean, something to the effect of she's as bad at, or, you know, you can only expect this from somebody who's who's that bad when you're, you're the boss is that bad. Right. I mean, Biden. I, it is amazing to me because, I, look, and I've been very open. I wrote in my first book about some of the things that I, I should have, could have done better. I made mistakes. I'm very open about that. Uh, we're under a lot of pressure. And I mean, I, again, I'm not here to, to, to relive that. But on a daily basis, Corinne Jean-Pierre looks unprepared. She's got no access to the president and she completely misleads people on a regular basis and yet faces no criticism whatsoever. In fact, gets like a whatever it was, L or Vogue profile. It's, it's actually disrespectful to the media. I, I In a different era, again, if this was Barack Obama's press secretary, I think we, this would be covered differently. I, I think that it's disrespectful to the media in that room and to the the the, the audiences of these media outlets who rely on the journalists in that room to get the information from that press secretary. They, they work for us. To have her be so, not just bad at her job, but almost disdainful of the job that she's supposed to do. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's unbelievable. It's it's getting worse. It's always been that way. I, why, I, why hasn't there been a single, like I, I've always said to reporters, I the one question I want someone to ask her is, when was the last time you spoke with President Biden, right? On any given day, because I believe that- Is this it in the binder? What, I, don't, I don't know if that answer is in the binder. I, I know, maybe <laughs> that's not in the binder. But the thing is, is that this administration between, you know, uh, Rashetti and, and Anita Dunn, uh, they, they have done a great job of really isolating him. I find it interesting as a side note, I'll, I'll mention this to you and see what you think, but like whenever something happens from the first few days, that T.J. Ducklow issue- the former deputy press secretary who yeah. was having a relationship with someone from Axios. He had acted out against someone from Politico. They fired him. When asked about it, they said, no, we never told the president. Ron Klain dealt with it. And then the other day, when they elevated John Kirby 
It wasn't the president. He was being given the rank assistant to the president, the highest rank you can get in the White House, equivalent to the White House press secretary. And the statement didn't come from the president of the United States. It came from Anita Dunn. And then Jeff Zients, the chief of staff, backed it up. It just, it blows my mind. No one's seemingly asking how, I mean, I probably talked to Trump 10 times before noon on any given day. And yet you have a press secretary who I don't believe actually has any access to the, to the president himself. I, I think that's that's certainly true. And I will say this, I don't have any any inside information on this, but I, I from the little bit that we've seen reported out there on what life is really like behind the scenes with with Joe Biden in, in a way that is is kind of revealing uh, in in even just in in after the her report, uh, the special counsel report, and Biden going before doing a sort of impromptu press conference that was really a train wreck. Some of the comments uh, there were some of the reporting around that that he pushed to do that against the advice of some of his 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 account uh, his, his administration. So I will say this: th- this is a good thing to watch in the media if there is this big like break glass in case of emergency moment that they the the Democratic establishment and the media have decided that we need to move on from Joe Biden. Wait for the stories about what the, the West Wing is really like behind the scenes. What is the the day to day actually like? What we we see a lot. We don't see a lot of Joe Biden out there in the public. We don't. We see on on his schedule that he doesn't really seem to have a lot of activities. But wait till we start to get the reporting on what's really happening behind the scenes. How little meaning what? He is meaning involved. like meaning that he falls asleep or what? What what is it that but we need to potentially that 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 others are concerned about about his ability to to lead is certainly one. But also just how uninvolved he is on a day to day basis. I think I think if we start getting stories about these are the people that are actually running the country. If 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 that is really the truth, and that's the kind of stories that are being reported by the mainstream corporate me, uh, media, that's going to be the tell they are ready to move on from Joe Biden. That's the way you push him out the door. All right, folks, if you're a longtime watcher of the show, you know about my friends at Delta Rescue. Uh, Go to deltarescue.org and you can check it out. If you're an animal lover, you're going to want to see the amazing work that they're doing there. And it was all started by a guy named Leo Grillo. I've gotten to know Leo over the, the last several months. He's a great guy that had a mission, which was to give abandoned and malnourished and maltreated animals, dog, cats, horses, a sanctuary, not a shelter. It's a no-kill sanctuary. And if you go to deltarescue.org, there's a bunch of videos on there. If you're an animal lover like I am, I've rescued three dogs. Uh, you, You know what I'm talking about. You watch these animals that have been abandoned have a place to roam free to get the nutrition they need, the veterinarian care that they need for life. Now, Leo started this off when he rescued one dog, but it has now become a lifelong mission for them. So if you go to deltarescue.org, you can not only see what they're doing, but you can help them out. And they rely solely on our contributions. There's no government funding, no nothing. It's all you and me and everybody else who's an animal lover out there. So you can give $5 or $100, 1000 whatever you feel comfortable if you're an animal lover to take care and make this. But you can also go and check out that estate planning kit there and think about making them part of your estate so that this mission that Leo Grillo started can become an enduring one so that dogs, cats, horses can always have a lifelong no-kill sanctuary to be taken care of. Please go to deltarescue.org and help them out. We once in a while we'll get this the the the, the shade will come up just a little off the window yeah. and and you'll hear stories that you know this whole idea that he's sweet uncle Joe and you'll hear about these profane Right. Tyrant, tyrant, uh, you know, he goes off and just yells at people using profanity, and then he's not that nice of a guy behind closed doors. And he, yeah. but 
it's almost like, is that the reporter or the editor or a corporate, the people up in New York saying, okay, write this story? Because that to me is interesting. The, the people close to him have to know this. I mean, he doesn't have anything on his schedule. We watch him walk. We know that he he's, uh, you know, takes naps and all this kind of stuff. So what, who's making that call? Well, one of the things I read about it Uncovered is that a lot of times what feels like a big, vast conspiracy is actually just a lot of times laziness and incompetence. So, so I don't think that there is necessarily this big conspiracy of, of okay, we're all going to get together and decide for this. Right, right, right. I, but I, on, I, a, on a story-by-story yeah. story basis. I, I will say two things, two things to look for. One is well-sourced reporters that I trust. And, and there are there are well-sourced reporters that, that I do trust that there are throughout the media. Axios, you mentioned, is, is one of them. I, I think has done some good reporting on the Biden White House. Alex Thompson has done some reporting. That, that seems like a real eye-opener that they don't like, but he is sourced in there and he is reporting things that the, let's say, the, the, the Biden blob doesn't necessarily want him to say, but they don't push back to and say are not true. And so if he starts to do these sorts of reporting, well-sourced reporters, if they start putting it out there, that's one. The other one is what we've already seen. Ezra Klein at the New York Times, who is one of the insiders, let's say this is a guy who ran the quote unquote journalist back in the day, which was an actual conspiracy. I mean, this was a bunch of journalists on a listserv, you know, an email exchange kind of deciding how they're going to cover things along with, with people from the Democratic Party. So he is extremely well sourced and extremely well thought of. And he is now calling in a very rare instance of a monologue only podcast that he put out from the New York Times saying it's time for Biden to step aside, that people close to him have to tell him it's time to go. And so if we start to see these kinds kinds of people, those kinds of voices, reporting stories and making you know, sort of opinion cases for it, I think that's when you know that the tide has really turned. Uh, you know, I had Newt Gingrich on earlier this week and he brought up something that was very interesting. And I, I actually think he's onto something here. And, and it's true of anybody, but more so in Biden, because when you're older and you're not as day-to-day and hands-on, that his the case that Gingrich was making was that there are too many people that depend on Biden right? That they're getting contracts, they're getting money, they're getting jobs. Yeah. They're, like Too much flows up through him for them to, to want to get rid of. And you you think of the people that are around Biden, Rashetti, Donilon, Dunn, um, Jen O'Malley. Like, the, these are folks that have been with him forever. And a second that he's gone, I've worked for a lot of members of Congress. As soon as they retire or lose, your power goes away. And there's this interest for these people to keep Joe Biden in power. And I just wonder, you yeah. know, do they do they feed the beast and kind of are like, hey, we're gonna take care of you guys. Like, we'll make sure you get your stories or your access. Like, what is the trade-off there between some of those people? Because I truly do believe those are the people that really run the government. Right, well, I, I think that this, this, now we start getting into a little bit more of the, uh, the behind the scenes machinations here, because I, I will say, you know, I, I think it would be a different story if Joe Biden was a different, you know, a different person, let's say, right? It, this is someone who is, I know people have described it as the third Obama administration, uh, the third Obama term, because of how much crossover there is from that. And so we have this kind of continuation of that. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, I think the Hillary Clinton 2016 administration would have been like an Obama third term as well. And so I think if you can really hand select who that person who fills that presidential seat is, if they can really be continue a continuation of it. Yeah, there will be some people that were kind of the insiders in the Biden world that maybe will be a little bit more on the outside. But if you can get the Obamas of the world and the Susan Rices, and you really start to to, to gel around the the current 
you know, the current class of the Democratic Party, and that's what you hand select out of, I think you can find a way to do it. And, and, and again, I, I think we'll, we'll start to see the seeds of this out in public in the media, because these are the kinds of people that, that are the ones who are the lifers in D.C. These are the people yeah. that are sourced within the, within the D.C. establishment. You know, earlier this week, I saw just one of the most rich attacks I've seen in a long time. Ben LeBolt, the communications over there, director over there, put out this attack on Republicans echoing what Biden had said, that House Republicans were on a two-week vacation instead of doing their job. And I'm like, well, first of all, they're not on vacation. Like, they're in their districts. That's just a fact. They're not. This isn't like spring break and they're at Daytona. Uh, This is them being in their district, which, to be blunt with you, I am... hugely for the less time in Washington, the better meeting with constituents and small business owners. But that aside, for this administration to accuse somebody, anybody of spending a lot of time on vacation when this guy literally hangs out in in either Delaware or Nantucket or whatever the vineyard, wherever he goes, I, I just, I could not believe that nobody called that out. I didn't see one story saying, Hey pot, it's me kettle. Right. Right, exactly. And and these are the sorts of things that you get. I know that they started their own kind of war room X account on the Biden side, essentially raising every time Donald Trump sort of slips up when he's speaking. It's like, who who are we kidding here? I mean, this, but this is your only line of attack. This is the only way they have to, to try to, to really try to, to, to change the trajectory of the race right now, which is a, a disaster for them. I mean, look, there's a long way to go. We've got a lot of trials still to, go, to come, I, I think at least a, one or two that will, will definitely happen in 2024. So there's, it's a long race. But, but I, I think they're grasping at straws because there is no other way. There is no alternative to how to, to try to turn this thing around. It's not going to be that Joe Biden all of a sudden is going to become this great orator, although we know he's going to try at the State of the Union next month. So we'll see how that gets covered. But, but yeah, I, I think that they're just trying to grasp anything they can at this point. Yeah. By the way, I've always said, I will tell you this, he's going to get a sugar high. The speech will be fine. He'll promise everyone all the things that they want to hear. He'll get a three to five point bump and then it'll be gone by the weekend. I, I, to me, the idea that you can stand for 45 minutes and give a good speech promising everything to everyone is not exactly a strategy. That's a speech. It's a tactic. That's not a strategy. It's, it's, I I will say this though. One of the other tweets that you, you put a poll out that I thought was fascinating because I asked this all the time of guests on the show that are in the know, usually on the Republican side, but you wrote, who will be the Democratic nominee? Michelle Obama, 45.5, Kamala Harris, 34.8, Susan Rice, 14.6, and Valerie Jarrett, 5.1. A, I was surprised that Hillary Clinton didn't pop up there just because why not? But I I cannot believe, I I mean, I, I have explained to the audience here over and over again why I do not think that Michelle Obama will be the nominee because just because a, I still don't believe she wants it. B, I just don't think there's a machine that everyone believes will happen that will hand it to somebody who's not in the, there's enough people in the game that want it. Um, and, and number three is I just, I don't think the Bidens want to look to the Obamas to bail them out. They've been very bitter since that first go round in 2016 when, when uh, Obama overlooked Joe Biden for Hillary Clinton. But what do you make of this speculation that continues about Michelle Obama being the great savior? Yeah, it's it's getting louder. Uh, I will say I, I she was on Jay Shetty's top-rated podcast recently, which 
was a little odd. She wasn't there to promote anything, um, but she was out there talking politics. And that was something that I think was raised some eyebrows, at least. I, the poll I put out was a little bit of a troll, I will say. Uh, you know, obviously Biden was not one of those choices. I think that if you're a, if you're a betting person like myself, I think the, the smart money probably is still that Joe Biden is the nominee. But if he's not, Kamala Harris, really? I mean, is that going to work? And if it's not Kamala Harris, I don't see how you can put in someone. And, I, and I, I'm not saying this because I'm this big you know, woke person, but I don't think you can put in someone who's not a black woman. I just don't I, see I agree. No, can, no, that has, a, that's, yeah. that's a, that's, that's, a, I think just a smart analysis of the democratic party. You don't tell the first black female vice president, Hey, step aside for straight man, Gavin Newsom. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it just, it, it, I cannot see a scenario where that works. The margins are going to be so small in this. And if you lose black women, which is one of your top constituencies when it comes, you know, percentage wise, you're, you're, you're done. That's, that's, that's game over. So I don't think that's going to happen. So I threw in some other names. I, I have had, you know, heard a little bit about Susan Rice, which I think is interesting, you know, served in the Obama administration, served in the Biden administration as well. Recently was kind of the star of another piece. I believe it was an Axios piece uh, about the border and how she was, uh, so much smarter than both Kamala Harris and Alejandro Mayorkas. That was an interesting one. I don't know who planted that one, but certainly made herself look good there. And I will just say this, here's the window to watch. There is an opportunity where if Biden steps aside after he is secured the nomination at the end of August, after the convention, and sometime before mid-September, when you have to really make sure the ballots are all set in stone, you can he can step aside and the DNC just picks who the, the person is. You don't really have to run a campaign. So if Michelle Obama is going to be the nominee, I think that's that's how she gets installed. I think that's still unlikely. You probably end up with someone more who who's interested in politics, uh, like a Susan Rice. Uh, but that's a way to do it where you don't have to actually campaign. You don't have to debate Trump. You could just call him an insurrectionist saying you're not going to step on stage with him. And you've got a chance. You know, I, all right. I, I just inched a little bit closer to, to Biden. <laughs> I mean, I, I've always said that at the convention, which is where Biden would would have to yield. But I think you're, I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I get it. But that's to me, uh, I think the convention is going to be killer to, to watch to see how that gets yeah. framed. Um, I've also, I mean, to me, that's this, the, the Republican, by the way, if you go to the Republican Party website, you can read the rules. It's very similar. After the after the nomination is secured in uh, this year in Milwaukee, if if he were to drop out, which by the way, uh, being with Trump in 2016, he ain't dropping out. That yeah. guy withstood everything he did then. But just so people understand, that's when that would have to happen. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Um, I I do want to. Uh, I want I, before I. There, there, well, let me go down this. The one thing that really continues to be a pet peeve of mine, and I'm addicted to them, is Sunday shows. And yet they continue to have these roundtables, and the roundtables never have anyone that actually supports Trump, right? So it's always right. a Republican, but the Republican hates Trump. So it's like Liz Cheney or <laughs> right. some former member of Congress, and they'll be like, here at the roundtable, left wing, left wing, left wing, and then the token Republican. But the Republican's there as a never Trumper. Why? What is the what is the harm? To, to in your mind, having been around all these different media outlets and just saying, fine, here's, you know, some former Trump official or some current Trump official that will make the case. Like, what are they so scared of just having one guest on? I think it's the it's the scar tissue that they have from 2016 and and the way that they were pilloried by their peers for essentially 
helping Donald Trump become president, uh, yeah. whether it was during the primary and during the general. And and I, I think that they're just so scared uh, and so you know panicked and, and fearful of it, of the backlash that they might get from a few very loud voices on social media that they think have actual power when, you know, really most Americans would really be, be grateful for that. Even if you're a, an American on the left, you want to hear what actual people have to say. And frankly, most of the country, when it comes to Republicans, support Donald Trump. So you're not, you're not going far afield. It, it actually would be, would be very well served. Uh, their audience would be well served if you, if you had that, but they're, they're scared of, of the backlash. I, I think, I think it's, it's, it's sad. Yeah. The other thing that I found fascinating, and it happened this weekend over and over again, Jonathan Carl played the sort of the faux outrage that he has uh, when he was asking Nikki Haley, so with all of these things you said, can you still vote for Trump? And they asked this, whether it's Jonathan Carl or George Stephanopoulos or Christian Welker, they're outraged that Republicans will still ultimately support the Republican nominee, which I find fascinating, not because that they find that so nuts, but then they've never, not one Democrat has ever been asked, Joe Biden, whatever, 80% of Americans don't think he has the mental fitness to do the job. Are you committed to supporting him? They've never asked a Democrat. Right. The same question about concerns of, of it's funny, they'll tout the poll and say Americans by 80% think that he's, doesn't, he's not up to the job. But they'll never ask a Democrat lawmaker whether or not that's a concern to them and will they vote for them. No, the hypocrisy is is very clear. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you my pet peeve when it comes to the way they. I, I George Stephanopoulos does this all the time. He'll ask a Republican, totally irrelevant. W- would you do you agree that, that the, to, to accept the results of the twenty twenty four election? Right. Would you agree? You must agree right now because otherwise you're you're an anti democracy insurrectionist. Right. The, ask that to a Democrat. No matter what, if Donald Trump wins in twenty twenty four, will you say that he is the legitimately elected president? Watch, watch them just, well, we don't know what he's going to do. Who knows? It's Donald Trump. I mean, no, no, no. Now you're against democracy. I mean, no, we're saying if Donald Trump gets elected, will you accept the results? I mean, that, it's, it's, it's the hypocrisy could never be more clear. I, I, that's what I find. I agree with you. I think that that's these guys, because again, they remember they all protested, you right. know, previous electoral colleges. Um, Tucker Carlson was in Russia. He interviewed Putin. I didn't watch the full two hours, but I watched a bunch of it. And then he did a couple additional mm-hmm. interviews afterwards. Um, I wasn't, a, I'm not a huge fan of giving Putin a, a platform per se, but I thought Tucker asked questions that hadn't been asked in the guy. And frankly, no one's asked since he invaded uh, Ukraine. He asked him about the detained journalist. Um, what were your thoughts? I, the media went apoplectic. How dare he go there and do something that we always wanted to do, but can't like, do you think that he did a good job? I thought the interview was was good. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. I think that you know you could have criticisms of certain parts of the interview. It was a very long interview, like you mentioned, it was two hours long. <laughs> uh, I thought he had, you could find anyone could find what they're looking for if you're looking for for the good stuff or the not as good stuff. So I think it's it's a it's a good exercise to interview Vladimir Putin. He's extremely adept, as we saw there. Uh, so. I think that if you, you, Tucker Carlson was going to get criticism for the interview no matter what, but I thought it, it would, the reason he's not getting as much criticism is because it was better than expectations. That's also putting aside some of the uh, ancillary content that was put out around it, whether at the grocery store and whatnot. But I thought the interview itself was, uh, was solid. It was just funny because they were all, I mean, to a T, they were apoplectic. Like, how dare yeah. he go do this? But 
they would then point out when the last time they had done it. So I was watching this one interview, one thing on NBC, and I think it was Keir Simmons that said, I haven't interviewed him since 2021. It's like, okay, so it's okay when you do it and you ask the questions in the order that you do. But then they, they, one of the criticisms on another channel was he waited to ask the question about that Wall Street Journal reporter that's held in captivity uh, until the end. And it's like, okay, well, strategically, maybe that was the smart thing to do. You don't piss the guy off early on in the interview. You wait right. to the end and see what you can get. I, it was just, it, to me, I found it more that they were jealous of what he had done as opposed to the body of work. Of course. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good get. And, uh, and yeah, I, you know, if he didn't ask the question at all, it would be, of course, why didn't you ask the question at all? So we asked it at the end. I think he asked it, uh, that question in particular in a very tough way. I uh, got, a, got a pretty good moment out of it. Um, but, but no, of course, you're ne- you're, they can never just say, okay, good job, good, you know, good question yeah. on that one. Um, all right, I will tell you, uh, I know we're out promoting the paperback version of, of Uncovered, but I said this to you the last time I spoke to you. Uh, I think if you really want, go buy it, but listen to the audio version. I love the way that you've incorporated the interviews, the first person interviews in the book. I, I've always thought that was a really unique way to do an audio book. Um, and so if you're interested in hearing these interviews from Steve, he, he's got Tucker Carlson and John Roberts, Kaylee McEnany. Um, it, I think Brian Stelter's in there too, right? Stelter, Stelter's not, but there are lots of people from the New York Times okay. and people from MSNBC yeah. and, and no, yeah, 24 you cover people the gamut, on the, no, but on I, the record. I loved, hear I loved the audio book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you've got Tucker in there and I, I love the way that it just, you, you're, you hear it in their voice. And so obviously I know you want to promote the, the paperback. So if that's your, you know, if you want to read it, but it's one of the best analysis of where the media is today. Uh, I love how you cover everything from uh, Black Lives Matter to Ferguson and and Kyle, I mean, uh, the Covington Catholic situation. Right. So I, I, I highly recommend it. I appreciate you being with us. Thank you all for joining us for this episode. Uh, please continue to subscribe to the show. Click, subscribe, share, go to Rumble. YouTube, Spotify, Apple. Give us that five-star review. We've got a great week lined up next week. Full results from the South Carolina primary. Have a great weekend. We'll look forward to seeing you next week here back on the Sean Spicer Show. Thanks.